We are going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 7 this morning. As you've heard, we're in the midst of a 66-week sermon series, and you're wondering, who does that? Oh, uh, we do. Uh, we're going through each book of the Bible, there's 66 of them, and just taking one passage out of each, not giving you an overview sermon, because those get a little bit academic after a while, but just a little snippet from each. And think about this. Uh, in relation to your discipleship, the way that you follow Jesus, it's a great way to invest a year and a half, to hear from uh, at least a snippet from every single book in the Bible so that you know a little bit of the main themes and, and what God is saying in each of those times. Like It's one of the ways that we grow in our understanding of God and his word. Now, that's not what maturity is. It's part of maturity. Uh, Additionally, we want to grow in godly character as we take those things and apply them to our life. And we also want to grow in ministry skill as we uh, are faithful doers of the word and, and, and sharers of the good news of the gospel. But think about it as a, a great way to invest in learning and understanding the, the scope of God's word. How cool is that? Let's pray. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the chance that we have to look at 2 Samuel. And to see what you are doing in the life of King David and why that matters for us today. And so, Holy Spirit, would you speak through me or in spite of me, but would you speak to everyone here? God, we desperately need to hear from you. So would you do that for your glory and our joy? In Jesus' name, amen. There, there's a word that very few of us like to hear. The word is no. Right? Whether you're a toddler or whether you are a 75-year-old, often the worst tantrums are thrown when you hear the words, no, you can't do that. In our passage this morning, David, King David, brings a request, a good request, a godly request to God, and God says no. Here's a brief video that gives you an overview of 2 Samuel. The second book of Samuel was likely written by the prophets Nathan and Gad, covering David's reign between 1000 and 960 BC after the death of Samuel. After Saul dies in battle, God elevates David as Israel's king. His first order is to unite the separate Israeli tribes into one kingdom, conquering Jerusalem as the capital city. Further, David makes Jerusalem the nation's spiritual center, vowing to build God a temple in which to dwell. God responds with a promise to build David a house, a royal line leading to a future coming king who would one day establish God's temple on earth and initiate an everlasting kingdom. David rules as a good and faithful king, leading the nation to love God and obey his word. But one night, the king falls into temptation, lust, and adultery, leading to conspiracy and murder in an attempt to hide his sin. The prophet Nathan confronts David's wickedness, and David humbly repents, turning back to God. But the consequences of his sins are great. Over his remaining years, his family's dignity slowly crumbles under the weight of jealousy, abuse, and betrayal. In spite of King David's failures, God is faithful to continue the royal messianic line, from which blessing and redemption will one day come to the whole world. The question I want you to wrestle with 
that David has to wrestle with in this passage is how do you respond when God tells you no? How do you respond when God tells you no? 2 Samuel chapter 7, we'll look at the first 17 verses at first, and then we'll get through the chapter. Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See, now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In, a pl in places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commended to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make you, for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all the vision, this vision, Nathan spoke to David. So David comes with a request to God. I now have a, a house of cedar, a palace that I'm looking or that I'm living in. It's not good that I should have what God doesn't have. So God, let me build you a temple. Let me build you a permanent structure where your glory and your presence will dwell above the Ark of the Covenant. David's logic is I shouldn't have what God doesn't have. He asks a good thing in many ways with good motives in his heart. His son Solomon, when dedicating the temple many years later, reflects on his father's request and his father's heart. He says, but the Lord told David, you wanted to build a temple to honor my name. Your intention is good, but you are not the one to do it. One of your own sons will build the temple to honor me. And now the Lord has fulfilled the promise he made, for I have become king in my father's palace and now, or in my father's place, and now I sit on the throne of Israel, just as the Lord promised. I have built this temple to honor the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. So if David gives this good request with the right motives, that God would be glorified, that the people would have a place to worship, and God would have a place to inhabit and dwell, why did God tell him no? You wonder that? Well, God actually gives two reasons. One, first, I didn't ask you to do it. 
I didn't ask, so why are you doing this? And second, your son after you will have the privilege of building me a house, a temple. Now, it's a noble sentiment, but God says, I, I didn't ask you to do this because I have other things in mind for you. And even though it's a noble task, your son is going to get to do this. Many people believe that the reason God said no to David is because his task as king was to finally and completely drive out the enemies of God's people so that the people of God could flourish as one nation. The task that Joshua had failed to do, the task that judge after judge after judge after judge had failed to do to drive out the inhabitants of the land so that God's people could flourish and thrive in a united kingdom. Solomon says as much later on. When he's beginning the work of of gathering the materials to, to build the temple, he writes a letter to Hiram, the king of Tyre, to request some of the cedars of Lebanon. And he says this in, in 1 Kings 3. You know that David, my father, could not build a house for the name of the Lord his God because of the warfare with which the enemies surrounded him until the Lord put them under the soles of his feet. But now the Lord my God has given me rest on every side. There is neither adversary nor misfortune. And so I intend to build a house for the name of the Lord my God as the Lord said to David, my father. So another way to actually conclude this is that the only reason that Solomon has the bandwidth and the opportunity to build the temple is because of what David did first. Because of the hard work of his father David in driving out the enemies of God and winning a blood-bought peace. Have you ever had a good desire that you've brought before the Lord? And he said, no. Or he said, not yet. Or he said, I'm going to do that, but I'm going to use somebody else. Lord, I would love to be a pastor someday and preach your word, but maybe he hasn't given you that gifting. Or I would love to be a gifted evangelist telling people about the gospel of Jesus Christ and seeing my friends come to Christ. But often when you share the gospel, it's like, eh. Or I would love to be a professional athlete and use that platform in order to make much of God's name. Or, or maybe even more personally, I would love to be a mother and invest in my child and disciple them to love and serve and honor Jesus. We've all, I think, had dreams for the, for the Lord only to hear in either a direct or an indirect way, no, or not yet. I've certainly had many dreams not come to fruition Things that my desires were good, I wanted to see happen, but God said, no. Or God said, no, I'm going to use that person. Or God said, maybe not there, but over here. See, I've come to find that when God says no, it has a way of testing my faith. You guys find that to be true? Primarily in three areas, God tests our faith when he says no. One is, how much do I really love God and care about his glory not my own. Because if I love God and care about his glory, then I shouldn't be so personally offended when he says no. Or maybe even worse, when he says not you. See, when God says no, we're forced to deal with the motives of our heart, aren't we? And ask, is this really about God? Or is this about me? And often our motives can get so twisted that we desire really, really, really good things for all the wrong reasons. To make a name for ourselves, To be somebody. 
out of some misunderstanding of the gospel that feels like we need to produce for God in order to be seen as acceptable in his sight. See, when God says no, it has a way of testing. Do you really love God and care about his glory? Or is it about you? Second, how much do I really love my neighbor or others? This is often where the sheer ugliness of our heart is laid bare. When God says, I am going to do that. I'm just not going to use you. See, if our hearts are in the right place, then we should be thrilled that God is doing things and receiving the glory due his name. But often when God chooses to use somebody else, we realize very quickly our hearts aren't in the right place. God's no to us, but yes to another tests our faith and the genuineness of our love for other people. King Solomon wrote in the Proverbs, as the furnace for gold and the crucible for silver, so man is tested by praise. What we praise, how we praise, (laughs) has a way of testing the genuineness or the character quality that is there. See, if we care more about God's glory than our own glory, when God chooses to use and elevate someone else, we should be thrilled. We should be genuinely happy when things go well in someone else's life, but so often we're not. Why? We're so focused on ourselves. We're so focused on ourselves and what we don't have that we can't rejoice in the blessing of God in someone else, and that reveals and makes bare our motives, and it's ugly. You know what's crazy? God loves us anyway. And we're going to see, God chooses to use us anyway. Here David has this wonderful desire and God says, I'm not going to use you, I'm going to use your son. And David is forced to wrestle with the motives of his heart. Finally, third, the third way that we're tested is how much do I understand God's grace? How much do I understand the nature by which God relates to people? God reminds David through the prophet Nathan, that everything he has is because of grace. Look at verse 8. I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep. David, you 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 were watching sheep. You were a nobody, and I picked you. That you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones, Of the earth. David, I have been with you, and the reason that everything that you touch turns to gold is because my blessing and grace is on your life, and don't forget it. The fact that God uses any of us to do anything of significance is not due to the fact that we are awesome, contrary to what we like to think, but that He is gracious. David, you are a shepherd, and I raise you up. David, I have been blessing you from the beginning, and I will continue to bless you and make your name great. See, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1, Paul is reminding the Corinthian church of the motives of their heart and the ministry that God has entrusted to them. And he says, therefore, having this ministry, because we're awesome. No, therefore, having, I'm just seeing if you're paying attention. It's probably small text. You're squinting. You can see it. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, We do not lose heart. Why don't we lose heart? 
because God has given us this ministry. Because we're awesome? No, but because of mercy, he chooses to use us and make our lives significant in the grand scale of eternity. God does that because of mercy. As if to remind them again so they don't forget, he says six verses later in in verse seven, but we have this treasure, the gospel message, in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. The treasure of Christian ministry is not the delivery boy or the delivery girl. It's the news that we bring. It's the gospel that we can be reconciled and saved because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. You can be forgiven and adopted into the very family of God, not by cleaning yourself up, but because there is one who has come and lived for you and died for you and rose again for you, that by trusting in him and his finished work, you might be saved and reconciled to God and given an inheritance that is crazy beyond your wildest dreams. That's the treasure, not the person speaking it. about you? When you desire to do something for God but are told no or not yet, or I'm going to use this person instead, what does that reveal about your heart? No's test our love for God, our love for each other, and our understanding of grace. But the real good news of this passage is not seen in God's no to David, but God's promise to David, his yes to David. God says no to his request to build a house, but makes him another astounding promise. He says, David, you are not going to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house. What does he mean by that? He means a dynasty, a legacy, a genealogy of kings. Read with me, verse 11. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up offspring after you who come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men. How can we read that without jumping immediately to Jesus? But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established, not for 50 years, not for 100 years, not for two or three or four or five generations, not for a 1,000 years. Your throne shall be established forever. What a crazy promise. God makes to David. It's called the Davidic covenant in the Old Testament. And and we need to pause for a second because this is one of the key turning points in the biblical story. This is one of the moments where God shifts his focus or narrows his focus on how he will relate to his people through the promises or the covenants that he makes. If you remember back in Genesis chapter 3, immediately when sin enters the world and wrecks everything, As God is pronouncing his curse on humanity, his curse on the serpent and on the earth, he also, in that moment of judgment, makes an incredible promise that from the offspring of the woman, from Eve, will come a deliverer, one who will crush the head of the serpent and restore the rightful rule and reign of God on the earth forever. And then in Genesis 12 and 15, 
we learn that this deliverer will come through the family of a guy by the name of Abram, who's childless, who becomes Abraham. That God would not only bless Abraham and make him into a mighty nation, but that through Abraham, he will bless all of the other families of the earth through this deliverer that would come. And then as Israel is called out of Egypt a few hundred years later under Moses, as they make their covenant on Mount Sinai in Exodus 19 and 20, we begin to think, is it now? Will God set up his rule and his reign now? And he doesn't. And that generation is an abject failure. And then they enter the promised land under Joshua in the back of our minds. Is it this? Is this going to be the ruler? Is this going to be the rightful king who will reign now? And yet Joshua falls short. And for 400 years, judge after judge after judge, deliverer after deliverer falls short of reestablishing God's rightful rule and reign and bringing peace. Here now, God is clarifying to David, David, from you, and one of the descendants that will come, he will be the king that people will finally need. In fact, his kingdom, there will be no end. His throne will be established forever. You think about, in the grand scale of human history, how relatively young and, and short our country has been around. To have a, a dynasty that goes on forever is an unbelievable promise. From the line of David will come a king, Messiah, Christ. And in the New Testament, even the blind Bartimaeus sees who Jesus is. He declares, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus, son of David, connecting who Jesus is to the promise that God is making to David in this particular passage that a deliverer would come, that one will rule on the throne of David forever, and his name is Jesus. There you go. Connected the Bible for you. God's no to David was followed with a far better yes than he could have ever imagined. No, David, you can't build me a house, but I will build you a house. What grace. Do you know that the same things are true for those of us who are in Jesus Christ? God tells us in Romans 8, 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purposes. Now, this doesn't mean that everything is going to be immediately make sense when God tells us no, or when we experience suffering, or when we find out, just like someone in the first service, that they got a cancer diagnosis this week. It means, in light of eternity and the promises that God has made to renew and restore all things, he is working things out in your life if you love him and have been called according to your pur his purposes. If you are in Christ, he is working things out for your good. Now, sometimes we say this in the wrong way so that it sounds cliche and trite, and so we just roll our eyes when we think about this passage. But brothers and sisters, this is an unbelievable promise, and it's true. We can take it to the bank that in light of eternity, God will work everything out for good for those who are in Christ. So his no today, we find actually in 1 Corinthians, all the promises of God are yes in Christ Jesus, and so we say our amen. Thanks. We might not say those things in the best way. We may make them sound cliche or trite, 
But brothers and sisters, can we not roll our eyes when we hear such an unbelievable promise like that? Could we dare to believe that it's actually true and trust him? That when God says no, how much more must he do to show that he is for us? He's already done the hardest thing imaginable. He's given up his one and only son. That's the logic of the next verses after that. How will he not also in him bless us with all things? So how does David respond to this incredible promise that God's made, God makes? No, David, but yes to this. He responds in prayer and in worship, a prayer that's filled with humility and awe and gratitude and faith. Can I read it for you? Starts in verse 18 and goes till the end of the chapter. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, the word sat is significant. It means he was going to be there for a while. He lingered. He didn't kneel. He kind of dwelt there. He just kind of simmered. He processed. He is taking it all in. He went in and sat before the Lord and said, who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come, and this, and this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God. Because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore you are great, O Lord God. For there is none like you, and there is no God beside you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people, whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. And you established for yourself your people Israel to be your people forever. And you, O Lord God, became their God. And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house. And do as you have spoken and your name will be magnified forever saying, O Lord of hosts is God of Israel. Or, the Lord of hosts is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken, and with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed. As I read through this prayer, I was struck by the way, he addresses God over and over again as, O Lord God. He uses it seven times, and parts of it even more. It means sovereign Yahweh, or sovereign Lord, Lord who is king, in control. So God has just promised that he is king, and that he will establish his kingship, and then he responds to God with, O Lord King, O sovereign Lord, who is king over kings. But actually, if you look in the Bible, David uses this a lot, but like right here, but this is not actually a very common way to address God, which makes you wonder, why does he do so so often here? And if you search for that particular name of God, you will see that it is used first in Genesis chapter 15. 
When God is making his promise to Abraham, Abraham responds, O Lord God. Now, this is significant. Why? Old Testament scholar Robert Bergen says this, David's reuse of the relatively unusual appellation for God in a similar context seems deliberate. The lexical link, or the, the, what he's doing with words, the lexical link between the Lord's compact with Abraham in the Torah and the one with David invite the reader to compare the two events and perhaps to accord them equal significance. Coming out of Abraham's experience with God was the promise of the land for Israel. Out of David's experience came the promise of a leader for Israel within that land. So here's what's going on. Just as God was doing something history-defining in his promise to Abraham a thousand years before regarding the ultimate restoration of his creation, so now God again is doing something just as significant with David and the promise of his throne. Yet again, we cannot understand this passage without making its connection to Jesus as the fulfillment of this promise the Davidic king who will rule and reign forever. Now, that's what's going on at a macro level, but I think there's some things that we can learn from this prayer when we think about our own prayer lives. In fact, I think there's four things that, are, that mark this prayer that stand out to me that I think should mark our prayer lives. Humility, awe or worship, gratitude, and faith. First, humility. David begins, who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? There is a humility and awareness that I was a shepherd and you picked me. You have put your hand of blessing on me. Who am I that you would be so kind to your servant? Who am I? I know myself. I know my sin. Who am I? There is a, a true biblical humility that doesn't think less of yourself, but just thinks about yourself in light of who God is. And is absolutely in awe. True biblical humility is not thinking less of yourself, but rather seeing who you truly are in light of who God is. And when we make that comparison, not one of us look good. And so the proper response when contemplating God's promises and God's word is, God, who am I that you would choose to do this for me? which leads us into a sense of awe and worship. The whole prayer is filled with this deep sense of awe, worship. Who am I? God, you did this. God, you are mighty. God, you have been faithful to your people. You have been so gracious, not only to your people, but to me. One of the great dangers, the longer that we walk with Jesus in the Christian life, is to lose our sense of awe and wonder at what is truly glorious. We hear it so often that we take something that is truly spectacular and treat it as ordinary. Yeah, I know that. Forgiveness of sins, ugh, 101. I already know. Inheritance in Christ, got it. We take things that are truly awe-inspiring, like what God has done for us, and we treat them as common of, yeah, I got that already. And when we do that, it leads us to elevating things that aren't all that amazing to replace God and what he has done. Brothers and sisters, never let familiarity with the gospel promises cause you to lose your sense of awe and wonder of what God has done. That God chose you. You. He picked you. Not last. He picked you before the foundation of the world. He 
He loves you. He forgives you. He gives you a name and a legacy in Christ that is far beyond your wildest dreams. And he was glad to do it. Humility, awe, worship lead David to a genuine sense of gratitude that he now expresses to his God for what God has done for him. What more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God. I'm so grateful for what you have done. Did you know that gratitude is one of the best possible things you can do for your mental health? And let's just say the last two years have not been kind to anyone who struggles in that area, which is most of us at certain times. One of the best things that you can do for your mental health is to express gratitude to God and other people that God has used in your life. It has a way of getting your focus off of you and onto the one that is truly magnificent. So, in light of that, if you're battling this week, and there's no shame in battling, we all do sometimes, maybe grab a journal and just start making a bullet point list of all the things in your life that you're grateful for. Maybe sit around the dinner table with your family and just take turns. I'm glad, I'm grateful for this. I'm grateful for this. I'm grateful for this. Express thankfulness and gratitude to God and to each other, and it's amazing how it lifts you out of your present circumstance. Or get this, maybe pick up a pen and write a note or a letter to someone who has encouraged you in your life or in your faith, and then you kill two birds with one stone. You know why? Not only is it good for you, but it's good for them. I've been around a lot of people, and the reason that people leave churches is not because they're too encouraged. I, in fact, I never meet anybody who's like, stop, would you just slam me? I'm too encouraged today. Could you just stab me in the back, please? Could you just maybe give a sarcastic barb my way? I would really appreciate that. No one is over-encouraged. Express gratitude for your sake and for others' sake. And can you imagine just being part of a church family where that's just normal? I want to be part of that. I want to grow in that. So humility, awe, gratitude, finally, and this really challenges me, faith. David's prayer ends with faith, with him essentially saying, do it, God. You've promised this, do it. Verse 25, and now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house, and do as you have spoken. Jumping down to verse 28, and now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant, so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken. David's prayer is filled with faith that God will do what he said he would do. Often in prayer, we remind ourselves of God's promises, but then in doing that, we call on God to deliver on those promises. We trust that he will do what he said he will do, and then prayer begins to fill us anew with greater faith. God will do what he said he will do, and so we pray, God, do what you've promised. God, do it. And so we need to ask, what has God promised? We can't say that God has made the same promise to us as he has to David in 2 Samuel 7. I mean, none of us are kings with a kingly line of Messiah coming from us. And yet, God has filled the pages of his word with promises made to us and to his church. 
And so when we pray, we should take hold of these promises and say, God, you promised it. Do it. Fifteen and a half years ago, Liz and I moved up here with a six-week baby, six-week-old baby, and we did so with a dream. Now, the Lord didn't promise me what he promised David, but I did get a sense that if we moved up here, God was going to do something. He gave us a vision for Rock Hill to grow and thrive as a community of people that where people could meet Jesus and grow into maturity and be equipped and sent out for service, that we wouldn't just be a church, but a church planting or a multiplying church in this community so that we could multiply little pockets of light so that everybody can know someone authentically following Jesus and see a community that displays the beauty of the gospel that they proclaim with their words. That's still the dream. That's still the vision And in humility, with a sense of awe over what God has already done and a profound gratitude, when I remember that, I pray prayers filled with faith, saying, God, do it. Display the beauty of your name in Duluth and Superior and to the people of the Northland. And prayer has a way of protecting God's glory, doesn't it? It tangibly reminds us we can't do this on our own. It isn't actually about us. And we ask him, and we say, God, I want to do this for you. And sometimes he says no, and other times he says yes. Can I, can I share with you some of the ways that he has said yes to his church? Some of the promises he's made? They'll be really quick. Matthew 16, 8. I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Matthew 24. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. When the Apostle Paul was in the city of Corinth and he had just gotten beaten and he was discouraged and he wanted to leave, the risen Jesus appeared to him and he said, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And so Paul stays the second longest he stays anywhere else in the city of Corinth. Or one that many of us are familiar with, the Great Commission, as Jesus gives us a mission of what we are to do, it is, it is bookended by incredible promises. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, says Jesus. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing or converting them, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey part of what I've commanded you. No, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. Just see if you're paying attention. And get this. And I am with you always. Behold to the end of the age. Now often when we read that passage, we focus in on the task that he is giving us and we forget the fact that he has all authority in heaven and on earth and he goes with us. You know what that means? It's gonna happen. It's gonna happen. Because he has all authority, and he's going with us. And where we go, we bring the king. And where the king goes, people bow. That's good news. Not force bow, but, but they see what he has done, and they respond like we have and say, yes, Jesus, this is incredible. And we get to be part of that. And so when we pray, yes, our prayers ought to be filled with a sense of awe, filled with a sense of humility, filled with a sense of gratitude. But as we pray, it should awaken in us faith that God is actually going to do what he said he's going to do. That's good news. So let's pray like that. All right, I'm done. Let's pray. God, do it. Do it. We ask, knowing for your glory and our joy, would you make us a people that embody this? 
Would you make us a people of prayer? God, I thank you that it doesn't ultimately depend upon us, but that you condescend to use us. That the reason any of us have ministry to do is because of mercy and grace. And yet, in that mercy and grace, our lives matter for eternity. And so, give us greater faith today as we pray and as we step out, hoping and expecting you to show up. We love you, Jesus. In your name we pray, amen.